Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I have to share with you a really tragic story that happened locally not long ago here in Palm Springs, California. Now, I know this is not the most uplifting way to begin a show, but there are some important points my guest today is going to make that dog guardians need to hear and think about. Today, we're going to be speaking about the risks at the dog park, the risk to both your dogs and to you. So what happened is this. In our city dog park, there are two areas, one small enclosure for small dogs, and then the much larger one for the medium and large dogs. Well, the guardian of a Chihuahua mix, for unknown reasons, let her dog run free in the large dog area. And the dog was attacked and killed by a Rottweiler. Now, I have to tell you, the Rottie had been going to the dog park a few days per week for years without incident. And in fact, I personally know this dog because he has accompanied his guardian, who is my patient, to my office. This is a sweet and affectionate dog who would give me kisses and let everyone pet her. So look what happens. Something set her off at the park. She goes after a dog who should have not been in there and kills him. And before you know it, the owner of the Rottweiler is summoned to court. So to avoid that, what he did was relinquish the dog to the shelter, and who knows what happens then. So I would say that this could have been avoided, and the owner of the small dog should be held responsible for the attack. But let's hear from a real legal authority on this. I want to welcome back to the show attorney Kenneth Phillips. Ken is a nationally renowned expert in the law pertaining to dog bites and is very interested in what happens in and around dog parks. Welcome back to the program, Ken. It's good to be here. Thank you. So, Ken, what are your initial thoughts when you hear what happened to this little dog? There was no common sense on the part of the owner of the Chihuahua. I mean, I I feel my heart is broken to hear about this accident because I owned a little Yorkie uh, myself and I was always worried about it. But, you know, to let the dog into the area of the park where the big dogs were was something that legally is referred to as assumption of the risk. Assumption of the risk is basically when you're consenting to being injured. And that's really what went on there. So, you know, this is a, this is one of those owner operator errors that we we see so often when there are uh, tragedies involving dogs. Now, people and dogs really like dog parks, Ken, and generally they are considered desirable community assets. But as this event shows, there are risks involved in visiting them. Do people judge the magnitude of these risks correctly? Well, I don't think that they do. I, I think that there are that just like in any other field, there are people that are more aware and there are people that are less aware. So you have people going to dog parks that, first of all, understand what the risks are. They understand where their dog should be. They look, they watch the dog while it's out there playing to make sure no bad situation is developing. They, they have their dogs on a leash, bringing them in and out of the dog park. So they're following the rules. They're doing the right things. But then you've got the other people. And those are not only, uh, they can be people that are unreasonable in terms of how they're behaving at the dog park. They can also be people who are bringing too many dogs into the dog park. So, there, you know, there's a mix of people, and, and you just have to keep your eye open. The bottom line is that dog parks, they're great. They're good for the dogs. They're good for the people. 
but they are not necessarily the safest place for every dog. Right. Some dogs are just not suitable to go to the dog park, right? I mean, what characteristics in a dog don't mix well in dog park? Well, you can't bring a female in heat. Uh, You should not bring an aggressive male dog. And if you have a dog that is uh, timid about being around other dogs, timid to the point that it feels that it has to defend itself, or a dog that wants to always fight with other dogs, you should not bring that dog to the dog park. You should not be training that dog, using other people's dogs to socialize your own dog. You have to use common sense. You must not expose other people's animals and pets to risk by your own dog. So, yeah, those, those types of dogs are, are not the right dogs for a dog park. We've spoken about the people and the dogs, and I want to talk about the parks themselves. But first speak a bit about the law, Ken, where responsibility lies for avoiding accidents and bites and fights, and who or what is potentially liable for these incidents. The, the rules of liability in a dog park are exactly the same as outside the dog park, with only one exception, and that is that a leash is not required. And if you look at it that way, you'll understand the whole legal concept of the dog park. The other thing to keep in mind is that there, there is no extra protection for you in the dog park. In other words, if something happens, you can't go to the city and say, well, you owe me money because it's your dog park and my dog was killed or my dog was injured and there was a $5,000 vet bill. You, you can't do that because the dog park is a recreational area set up by the government. And as such, you can't bring any kind of a claim because that's what the law is for recreational areas set up by the government. So if you, if you understand that it's exactly the same set of laws as anywhere else, except that you have the uh, no, you know, you can get by without a leash, number one. And, and number two, you are assuming a certain amount of risk walking in there. That's the basic legal framework. Are dogs supposed to be free from transmissible disease and have current vaccinations to be allowed to go to dog parks? This is one of those common sense uh, things that you, you wish that people would keep in mind. And there's a whole range of, of these things. Of course, they should be free of disease. Uh, when they when they're brought into the dog park, just like they should be free of those other traits that I mentioned a second ago, and and they and many dog parks will post rules, and you know when you violate the rules, there's another layer of of uh, it's not law, but but let's say it's regulation, and that is if there are rules posted, you do have to follow those. So that does become part of part of your obligation. Many of the dog parks do post a a notice that the dog has to be free of of anything that that any kind of transmittable disease or illness. How common is this, Ken, where where a dog hurts another dog at a dog park? I hear about these things all the time because on on my website, dogbitelaw.com, I have always been open for people to send me email and ask me questions and tell me about what's going on. So Every day I'm hearing about some dog getting injured in a dog park. Usually it's a, it's a situation where it's a, you know, it's a smaller dog. Uh, I also hear about people getting injured in dog parks. They get, you know, they get involved in breaking up a fight between their dog and another dog. That's how it usually happens. And somebody gets bitten in the process. 
You can get bitten by your own dog if your own dog is, is trying to defend itself and is in a panic. So I, I, do hear about, I do hear about accidents every day in dog parks. So let's talk about the dog parks as facilities. What makes a good dog park from a legal and safety perspective, and what are important deficiencies? One of the most important things is where is it located? You, you want to locate the dog park in a place where there is sufficient parking. You want it to be downhill as opposed to uphill because of the runoff, you know, when there's, when there's rain and when they, when they turn on the sprinklers for the grass, the, the water takes whatever is in the dog park and can run it down into the neighborhood. You don't want that to happen. Uh, you want there to be uh, adequate fencing. You want there to be double gates so that, you know, the dogs can't just run out when somebody new comes into the dog park. You want it to be at a sufficient distance from residential, uh, from homes and, and even from schools because of the barking and, you know, just the general distraction that, that can occur as a result of the, uh, the dog park being there. So the, these are some of the things that have to do with location. Then after that, you want to have something like a, a committee that is responsible for that dog park. You want some, some people that you can actually talk to, not, not just a sign that says this is what you're not supposed to do and this is what you are supposed to do, because there should be somebody that can, that can help supervise what's going on at that dog park. And I, and I don't mean just supervise the conduct of the people that are using the dog park, but also things like are, are when the dogs dig holes, are the holes being filled in? Are there, is there enough access to water? Are the water, uh, the water fountains and spigots working? Uh, are the benches clean? That type of thing. So, so a, a good dog park, uh, there's planning with regard to the location, and then there should be people that are part of a committee or, or some other such thing that are actually paying attention to what's going on and making sure everything's clean and neat and hospitable for everyone who's using it. Very good. Don't go away. More with attorney Kenneth Phillips. He's the author of DogBiteLaw.com. We're talking about dog parks. You're listening to Animals Today. You're listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for a serious talk about animals. Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. 
Animals Today fun facts for today are about prairie dogs. Despite their name, prairie dogs are not dogs, but members of the rodent family, like squirrels. They grow to be between 12 and 17 inches in length, and they weigh between 2 and 4 pounds. Prairie dogs are very social rodents that live in huge underground burrows called towns, where they can be tens of thousands of prairie dogs, and their tunnels can travel for miles in every direction. Prairie dogs are very affectionate towards each other and will spend a lot of time grooming each other. They will also touch noses when they approach each other like a little kid. And these are your Animals Today Fun Facts for the Day. Welcome back to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We're speaking to attorney Kenneth Phillips about dog parks. Ken, what are your pet peeves when it comes to people using the dog park? I think that that one of the worst things, that, one of the things that bothers me the most is that when a person is just uh, really the wrong person for the dog park or they're bringing in the wrong kind of dog. Now, I'll tell you what I'm thinking of specifically. You could have a dog walker who is using the park and they're using it commercially for their business and they're bringing in too many dogs. Mm. So it's not it's not as though we as as taxpayers want to support that because we're supporting somebody in their business. I don't think dog walkers with a lot of dogs should be bringing them into the dog park. I think there should be a top limit of, of let's say, three dogs for a dog park. And then similar to that, you've got the, the, uh, the obedience trainer who comes into the dog park or, and is trying to you know, train a dog there. Don't do that there. That's not really what it's for because it's just not fair to everybody else. And then speaking of what's unfair to other people, you've got underage kids, in other words, who bring dogs into the dog park. A kid who can't control his dog should not be bringing that dog into the dog right. park. Similarly, on the other end of the scale, the elderly person who is making use of the dog park. I, I love the elderly. I'm getting that way myself every day. But I don't want somebody who is who can't, control their dog to bring their dog into the dog park. Um, now, it, worse than that is the owner that drops off their dog and disappears. That's wrong because now there's nobody to watch that dog. Who's going to watch it? Everybody else? It's not our responsibility. So the owner who drops off the dog or doesn't watch the dog, I don't like. And speaking of owners, I don't go for I not, even owning a dog if you don't have insurance, and I'm talking about either renter's insurance or homeowner's insurance, both of those insurance policies usually cover accidents that are caused by your dog, but you have to check. You have to make sure that there's no exclusion in your policy. The way it works is if your policy doesn't mention anything about a dog, then you're fine. But if your policy mentions that it doesn't cover injuries caused by animals or injuries caused by dogs or injuries caused by your unpopular breed of dog, you got to change your insurance. So I'm, I'm completely against the, the owner who doesn't have insurance using that dog park because if something happens, who, who's going to pay? You know, the victim's going to pay. Right. Those are the main things that, that bother me in, in dog parks. The wrong people... And the wrong and too many dogs. Ken, 
How do you categorize the clients you see? Explain to my listeners the, the elements of your practice. You know, there are three types of people that, that consult with me. One of them, of course, is the dog bite victim because that's the most serious, that's the most serious type of, a, of an incident between a dog and a person. But there are, there are two other things that I have gotten involved in that people don't particularly know know me for one of them is when the dog has been injured or killed in other words where you've brought your dog out for example and your dog is on a leash and some one or two dogs come running down the street and they uh, get in a fight with your dog and now all of a sudden you have to pay a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars in vet bills i wrote a book for that because this is a case that attorneys usually do not directly handle i wrote a book for that called when your dog is injured or killed. And that book is, is available on my website, dogbitelaw.com. And then the third type of, type of case that people bring to my attention is the case where their dog is being accused of being a bad dog. In other words, they've been summoned to dog court and they are now facing penalties themselves in terms of fines or restrictions on owning a dog in the future. And their dog is facing some kind of a, of a penalty like confinement or even being taken away from them, uh, like in the story that you told at the beginning of the show. So that is called, I, I wrote a book for that. It's called Defending Your Dog, Win Your Case in Dog Court. And, Lori, I, yeah, I'm not in favor of vicious dogs. I don't want anybody who has a vicious dog to even know about my book, but for people who who are summoned before the dog court and have to defend themselves because attorneys don't handle these cases directly because it's very expensive for the dog owner if an attorney gets involved. For people that are, are looking for justice and even people that have a bad dog uh, but want to make sure that the sentence is commensurate with the crime, so to speak, those are the people that, that need this book. So those are the three things that I get consulted for. The dog bites, which is the main thing, and then when a dog is injured or killed and when a dog is being wrongfully accused. How do you define vicious? Well, vicious is, uh, that's a very good question because there's two different, uh, two different ways to define it. One, one way is the common sense way, which is that the dog, without any kind of uh, legal provocation, uh, goes after a person or an animal. That's that is the that's the common sense definition. And now notice that I said without a, a legal provocation. Right. There are people that will say that uh, oh you know the doorbell rang and that was provocation because it caused the dog to get startled and that's why the dog suddenly woke up and bit the little kid that was sitting next to the dog. That's not legal provocation. By legal provocation, I mean something like the dog was, was uh, defending itself or the dog was somebody just hit the dog with something and the dog snapped at the person. Uh, so that's the common sense definition of a, of a vicious dog. Then you have the, the, a different definition, which is when the authorities have summoned somebody into dog court because of some incident that has occurred. And that incident in some, in some cities can be as little as the owner was walking too many dogs, all right? They may summon the dog owner into dog court 
and then label the dogs as, as being vicious or dangerous under their code in that city. So, so you have two definitions. One is the common sense definition, and the other is you've been labeled. You know, your dog has been labeled a vicious dog. Kenneth Phillips, thank you for educating us about dog parks and what we need to be aware of. Ken is the author of DogBiteLaw.com and will answer your email questions free at kphillips at DogBiteLaw.com. You're more than welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you. Welcome back to the show. Well, uh, word has gotten out that the Western Governors Association has now placed feral or free-roaming cats on their list of the top 50 invasive species in the West. Pretty strange, right? And we wanted to find out what's going on and what does this all mean? Uh, And to do that, uh, we are happy to have Peter Wolf, who is research policy analyst at Best Friends Animal Society with us. And we're going to hopefully learn what's going on. Hi, Peter. Hi. Thanks for having me back. What does it mean to be on the top 50 list? It sounds not so good. Right. Uh, definitely not so good. Uh, this was, uh, to, as you mentioned, this is uh, recent news. This is something we at Best Friends uh, learned about earlier this month by way of a, a well-publicized uh, Associated Press story. And... You're exactly right. This is, I mean, obviously, this sent off all kinds of alarm bells in the animal welfare community, as well as, you know, among pet owners throughout the, the western half of the U.S. And, and just to be clear, the Western Governors Association, they're the, the states that this includes, if you, if you look at a map of the U.S. and you kind of start at Texas and go up through Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, those states and everything west, of those states are included in the Western Governors Association. So, again, this is a significant part of the, the country. And, of course, the concern here is, uh, there, you know, there's a few points. The obvious is as soon as you, you uh, uh, use that term invasive species, uh, you know, there's a, a sense that these, these cats are being targeted. And, and specifically, and this is kind of the first time we've seen it, they called out feral or they neuter release cats. Mm. So the idea that cats, as included in part of a trap neuter return program, would be specifically targeted was an enormous concern to, to us because we operate uh, more of these programs than any other uh, organization in the country, including right there in your backyard in, in Riverside County. Um, so, again, uh, an enormous uh, concern and kind of, you know, three points there. Um, all cats would really be included yeah. because, of course, you can't distinguish feral, TNR cat. Any, any outdoor cat would be uh, uh, included in this, this kind of wide net that, that WGA has cast here. Um, and, and so that's, that's concerning in and of itself. And, and also the fact that they're targeting TNR cats is, I mean, this, this is likely to actually backfire. So we want to reduce the number of, of unknown free roaming cats as well, out, you know, roaming outside and uh, reproducing. But, of course, we know that TNR is the way to do that. And by targeting the TNR cats, this is actually 
likely to undermine the very efforts that WGA should be embracing to bring their numbers down. And then the final point there is, is the way this was done, they surveyed state agencies, okay? And as soon as you've got state agencies, wildlife agencies, beginning to shape policies for how domestic animals are handled, you really set the stage for some jurisdictional confusion and conflict. Because, of course, domestic animals are typically a local city or county issue in terms of sheltering and, and who provides the funding for that. And especially in a state like California, it's not hard to imagine that this could, if you're a municipality, you might very well see this as um, any policies coming out of this this sort of most wanted list, if you will, yeah. uh, could be seen as unfunded mandates from, from the state down to uh, local municipalities. So uh, uh, a number of, of concerns here, and of course the sort of biggest one is, uh, you know, to be very kind about the whole thing, it's, it's at least unhelpful in terms of what they're trying to achieve um, their, their conservation and environmental goals. As I say, we in the animal welfare community are committed to reducing the number of unknown free-roaming cats. And this sort of thing, uh, it, it, it just is, as I say, it's, it's really unhelpful in moving us all toward that common ground. What do you know or what is your sense about how this came to be? Uh, clearly, you were not given a seat at the table and this was surprising to you and the whole community. What do you think is going on here? The, so we know a little bit about this from, from uh, what WGA posted online and, and what they had done. And this was as a follow-up to a, a, a resolution that WGA had passed in uh, 2016. They surveyed um, among their, their uh, member states, they surveyed what they call the invasive species coordinators. And, and again, these would be uh, these are the folks working in state agencies like uh, California Fish and Wildlife, or in Hawaii, it's the Department of Natu- uh, uh, Natural uh, GL and our Land and Natural Resources. Sorry, and in, so they they did a survey and essentially asked for you know what what do you think? And they they broke it down terrestrial, aquatic, um, plant and animal. Um, they asked what folks thought were the um, the most troublesome invasive species, and they, they you know compiled all of that into their most wanted list. Um, and and to be clear, we're told we haven't been able to confirm it, but we've been told. Um, well, we know for sure some states did not even participate in the terrestrial uh, portion of that survey. Uh, Utah, for example, did not participate in that part. So you know did not essentially did not vote on. Uh, a, terrestrial species in general, and certainly not cats. Um, we're told that this effort was really, where cats are concerned, it was really led by two states, Hawaii and Texas. Um, as I say, we, we've not uh, confirmed that, but that that's our understanding. Okay, so you mentioned that at best this will not be helpful. What can Best Friends as an organization uh, do, and what can uh, individuals who are concerned about this uh, do? Good question. What can be done? So the first thing Best Friends did, our CEO, Gregory Castle, uh, sent a letter to WGA uh, asking them to remove cats, again, for the reasons I mentioned, to remove cats from their invasive species listing. And then uh, we, and that's available online if, if folks want to go to bestfriends.org slash invasive. They can, they can see there the letter. 
And they can also follow links if they're residents of those 19 WGA states. They can follow links to take action. It's a really simple online tool. They can easily send a letter to their governor making the same request. Please have cats removed from this, uh, this most wanted list. And where does this go from now? What sort of pace can we expect to hear anything? That's, that's a tougher question. We, we have, I will tell you, we, we've heard that from um, Utah, which is, is maybe not surprising given that that's been our home for the last 30 plus years as an organization. Again, we're hopeful that the cats will be removed from this list, but given uh, the, the slow pace that these things uh, tend to move at, it, I, I would be surprised if we saw any significant action you know, in, in even uh, a few months, in part because I don't think that, again, we've got these advocacy alerts where folks can contact their governors. The governor's office in each of these states probably doesn't know yeah. what was really being said in their name by way of WGA. So a lot of those governor's offices are going to be surprised when they learn about this by way of, you know, their constituents uh, sending them an email to let them know they want cats removed that alone probably means things will move pretty slowly because, again, they, those governor's offices probably have to come up to speed initially and decide, you know, do they want to exempt their particular state? Would they like to sign on to a, a collective letter from a number of, of states maybe? So it, it, it's likely to be slow going. Um, we have seen a strong response um, in, in terms of our membership um, contacting their governor's office. So, we're, we're confident that, that there will be some movement on, on this, but it's, we're probably not talking, you know, days or weeks. Yeah. And we'll put the links up on our website as well. Uh, tell us one more time where people can go to uh, read more about this and to do that easy click to mail their letter in their particular state. If folks want to go to uh, bestfriends.org slash invasive, they can read the entire letter that Gregory Castle, our CEO, sent to WGA and see the links that they can follow, again, if they're residents of those 19 states, to take action and contact their governor's office with uh, a request to remove cats from this, this most wanted list. Peter Wolf is Research Policy Analyst with Best Friends Animal Society. Thank you very much. You're listening to Animals Today. I want to remind you to visit the website animalstodayradio.com. You'll be able to listen to all our previous shows for many years now, animalstodayradio.com, and uh, tell us what you think. Lori, I love some of the things people do to modify their houses or to customize their houses in order to make their pets happier or make their houses neater or make them more competitive on the resale market or on the new home market. And, uh, and we've told the story before, we actually designed our house around the idea of having an enclosed courtyard for our cats. And that's pretty much as out there as uh, you might want to go. And I really don't want to talk anymore about cats, although I do love those uh, little stairs that you can attach to your wall, but that's a that's a different thing. But the dog people, they are doing so many interesting things in, in their homes that look really nice and make life a little neater, a little safer, like those pet washing stations. There are all these great examples, little showers or tubs, depending upon the size of your dog. They're built in. They look really nice uh, instead of our struggling in the human shower to wash our dogs or using the hose outside. Some of them are really stylish. There are built-in dog beds. You can see those in cabinets or underneath staircases are built into 
pieces of furniture. Those are neat. There are disguised dog doors that will lead you to the outside. You think your dog is walking into another piece of furniture, and then there's a dog that's hidden. I love that. And then, of course, uh, inside you've got uh, Dutch doors, you know, those half doors. Those are good to keep your dogs in the room that you want, which is a good alternative to just putting a gate or a fence around that's nice when you can plan that ahead. And then, of course, this whole creative enterprise of finding feeding stations that are maybe integral to uh, a cabinet or just tucked away or it's in part of a shelf instead of just uh, putting your bowl out on the ground. So I love what these uh, creative people are doing for their dogs and their sense of style. Want to redesign our house? No, not at all. We're good. This is fun. A survey of a thousand dog owners and a thousand cat owners by Mars Pet Care shows dogs typically have a greater influence on their owners' decisions than cats do. So the survey found that cat people fancy themselves more creative than dog people overall. Dog owners, however, tend to earn more money on average, $47,000 versus $40,000, with dog owners twice as likely to work on the financial field and cat owners be nearly four times as likely to work in creative fields. Furthermore, dog owners spend 33% more on clothing and accessory and 26% more on entertainment than cat owners do. Now, cat owners are more likely to take in a documentary and show a higher preference for musicals and indie films, whereas dog owners are bigger fans of horror and action films. Another big difference they found, cat owners more likely to enjoy gentler hobbies such as reading, writing, or doing a bit of gardening, and dog owners are more into sports, yoga, dancing, and travel. The survey found that dogs are much more likely to improve their owners' lives through exercise than cats. That's 45% versus 8%. And interesting, dog owners are also more likely to be runners with one quarter, 25%, saying that they run regularly versus only 16% of cat owners. And not surprising, the majority of cat and dog owners are more likely to credit their pet with reducing stress. Other similarities, more than a fifth of pet owners take their dog and cat on vacation with them, a quarter eat meals with their pets, and more than a third buy their animals' presents on birthdays and holidays. Both dogs and cats have a massive effect on their owner's week-to-week life planning, more than two-thirds confirming their pet is a huge factor in their daily planning. The conclusion of this Mars Pet Care Survey, no surprise again, shows that pets play a significant role in our daily lives. March 31st, which is Thursday, is Cesar Chavez Day, a national commemorative holiday which celebrates the birth and legacy of Chavez. Chavez was born in 1927 and died in 1993, and his impact as a civil rights leader and labor movement activist was immense. He co-founded the National Farm Workers Union, which later became the United Farm Workers and succeeded in gaining improvements in working conditions for farm laborers. President Obama urged Americans to, quote, observe this day with appropriate service, community and educational programs to honor Cesar Chavez's enduring legacy. Now, you might ask, what does Chavez have to do with animals? 
Well, it turns out that Chavez also believed in the rights of non-human animals, even to the point of being vegan. In 1993, Dr. Elliot Katz, founder of Defense of Animals, presented Chavez with IDA's Lifetime Achievement Award. Our friend Eric Mills knows a thing or two about Chavez and his views and practices concerning animals. Eric is founder of Action for Animals. Welcome to the program, Eric. Thanks, Laurie. Appreciate you having me on. Eric, what did Chavez believe about animals and their place in society? Oh, boy. Cesar Chavez is a national treasure. And one of my most treasured possessions is a letter that the great man wrote to me back in 1990. I'd written to him about my work on rodeos and chariotas, the Mexican rodeo issues, and asking him for a support letter. And he wrote me back a short letter, but it contains this wonderful paragraph. I'd like to read if I might. Uh, excerpted, kindness and compassion towards all living things is a mark of a civilized society. Conversely, cruelty, whether directed against human beings or against animals, is not the exclusive province of any one culture or community of people. Racism, economic deprival, dogfighting, cockfighting, bullfighting, and rodeos are cut from the same fabric, violence. Only when we've become nonviolent towards all life will we've learned to live well ourselves. That's pretty extraordinary, I think. Sure is. I don't know if most folks know, but Mr. Chavez was a, a disciple of Gandhi and his uh, philosophy of nonviolence, and it carried over into society at large. I had the great good pleasure of meeting Mr. Chavez a couple times, marched with him in San Francisco once, and he told me at the time, this was probably the late 80s, that he himself was a vegetarian, had been so for a long time, and not for health reasons, but for ethical reasons, as was, he said, his, I think, 87-year-old mother at the time. Nobody knows this, and I think his followers need you know, to be aware of that and put it into practice. I was in the state capitol again yesterday. Every year I circulate this letter throughout the capitol. There's a lot of lip service paid to Mr. Chavez on his birthday, March 31st, as well as should be. But most of the legislators will bend over backwards saying nice things about Chavez, but they don't put anything into action that he preached. I met with the Latino caucus again this year, 25, 26 members, begging them to do a bill to ban steer tailing at the Mexican rodeo. It's a standard event. I got photos and video footage of tails being ripped off and horses getting their legs broken when the steers run the wrong way. And I think it's really important that we have a Latino author to carry the legislation so that it won't be seen as a racist attack upon Mexican culture and tradition, yeah. which, of course, it would be probably either way. None of the Latino legislators will touch it. They're all very sympathetic, but they say they can't do it because it's only Mexican-Americans who do this. I said, look, with all due respect, you're playing the race card in reverse. Right. If Cesar Chavez can speak out about this, then for heaven's sake, why can't you? Probably eight to 10,000 steers will be affected by such a law, and nobody will go there. And then I talked to the gringo legislators, and they won't carry it either because they say they would be penalized by the Latino caucus with their other legislation. Hmm. So both sides are playing the race card. You know, I'm from the South, and I'm gay. I know what racism and bigotry is all about. This is not it. It's simple animal abuse going under the guise of tradition and culture. Not acceptable, and it has to stop. I wish Cesar were with us today. He'd be leading the fight, I think. Eric, how do you recognize Cesar Chavez Day? Well, as I say, every year I circulate this letter throughout the Capitol, begging the legislators to do to put into practice what Mr. Chavez preached. I write letters to the editor. 
uh, which is always good. Uh, I'm sure there are going to be celebrations and marches, and I've set up booths in the past about this, just getting the word out there. We tend to forget sometimes, too, that animals are members of the society as, as well as people, and we all deserve respect and concern, consideration, and laws to protect us. As you know, the Pope recently ordained Junipero Serra as a new saint. I think it should have been Cesar Chavez, quite frankly, because he, he did, he's done more, I think, for people and animals in this country than most anybody else I can think of. But Cesar was a man of peace. He fasted for it. He really lived the life that he talked about, and very few of us do that. So he's certainly one of my heroes. Eric Mills, thank you very much. Thank you. I want to read to you a great quote by Chavez. We need, in a special way, to work twice as hard to make all people understand that animals are fellow creatures, that we must protect them and love them as we love ourselves. And that's the basis for peace. The basis for peace is respecting all creatures. We cannot hope to have peace until we respect everyone, respect ourselves and respect animals and all living things. We know we cannot defend and be kind to animals until we stop exploiting them, exploiting them in the name of science, exploiting animals in the name of sport, exploiting animals in the name of fashion, and yes, exploiting animals in the name of food. Thursday, March 31st, Cesar Chavez Day, a national commemorative holiday which celebrates the birth and legacy of Cesar Chavez. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Mm-hmm.